Okay, folks, I'm going to do a little bit of review like we do every time, and I've noticed that we're having trouble remembering the three main themes of Revelation, and so Steve came up with a nice mnemonic device, memory device trick to help us remember, all right? So the first thing is going to be cities, the second thing is going to be beast, and the third thing is going to be thrones, all right? So the first theme is two cities. What are the two cities? Somebody's remembered it, right. Old Jerusalem and New Jerusalem, and Old Jerusalem is... Keep going. What's Old Jerusalem? Yeah, the apostate Jews, not Moses and the Old Covenant. That's good. That's from God. This, the apostate Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right. And the New Jerusalem? Right. So, the book of Revelation will show the destruction of the Old, of, of the old Jerusalem and the establishment of the New Jerusalem. That's theme number one. Theme number two, two beasts. All right, the two beasts. There's a sea beast and a land beast. We're going to talk about this when we get there later in Revelation. Who's the sea beast? Which country is the sea beast? Rome. Good. And the land beast is apostate Israel. Third theme of Revelation is thrones. We hear thrones, what do we think of? The kingdom, right? The king. They've got 24 elders sitting on thrones, remember? So we're talking about a kingdom is being established. The new covenant kingdom is being established for the church. All right. So those are our three themes. Now, Let's review chapter 6. I know most of you weren't here on Wednesday night. But we talked about the six seals that were broken. Now remember, we got God sitting on the throne and he's got a scroll in his right hand, right? And what's and it had seven seals on the scroll. What did the scroll represent? A will. A will and, and the will was bequeathing to the church what? Kingdom. Kingdom. Kingdom of God. Very good. And there were six seals. You have to open the seals. Who opened the seals? Jesus, the Lamb of God. And the six seals, the first four were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Judgment, 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 war, death, and famine, bad news. The fifth seal was all the martyrs who'd been killed. And we said those were the martyrs who were killed by apostate Jerusalem as they persecuted the church. And then the sixth seal was all the decreation rhetoric, the moon turning to blood, the sun turning black, and the stars falling to the sky, and all that. It's judgment, judgment, judgment. Now, the seventh seal... We haven't gotten there yet, but what is the seventh seal going to be? The seventh trumpet. This is the way it goes. Seven seals, the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. Seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls, all of which contain judgment, judgment, judgment. But this chapter, chapter 7, is in between the seals and the trumpets. It's an interlude, and it does not have judgment. It has protection. Now remember, uh, God is sitting on the throne. Remember, he's surrounded by what? Clouds, dark clouds, what comes out of the clouds? Lightning, thunder. What does that symbolize? Judgment. There was also around the throne a rainbow, right? And what does that symbolize? Mercy. Covenant. So we're going to see some mercy here in Revelation 7. We start in verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the land. Now let me tell you about the translation. Unfortunately there are no preterist translations. Most translations of the Bible are done by futurists. And they always translate the, ink, the Greek word gay as earth, which sounds like the judgment is going all over the world and we've got nuclear bombs and, you know, the whole bit. But according to the Orthodox Preterist view, which I'm trying to present here, we believe that the judgment is falling on the land, the land of Israel. So I'm going to read it, land. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the land, holding back the four winds of the land, so that no wind would blow on the, on the land or on the sea or, or on any tree. Now... Let's start with four. If I tell you everybody in the four corners of the globe, what am I trying to say to you? The everything, right? The whole earth. 
We even have that expression in English. All right, four corners of the land, it means everything on the land, the land of Israel, is going to be judged, is about to be judged. So these angels are standing there. They're holding back the four winds of the land. Now, wind in the New Testament usually brought judgment and catastrophe. And there's a reason for that. If you look at the map, you got Israel, and what is to the east of Israel? It's nothing but this huge desert, the Arabian Desert, and it goes all the way to the Euphrates River where Babylon starts. And the wind would blow over that desert and would bring scorching hot winds, Sirocco, I think they call it, which would blast the crops, and then it would bring locusts that would eat the crops, judgment coming from the east winds. Uh, so these four angels are holding back this judgment that's just been talked about and is about to come in the, in the trumpets. Now, I've given you an example of the trumpets that are getting ready to blow. These are the trumpets that come out of the seven seals. And we'll see the uh, judgment that's coming comes on the land. I've got it in red here. On the land, the trees, and the sea. Where is the sea? Right here, right here. Sea. Let me get my clicker here. So, Revelation 8, 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the, or, to the land. So a third of the land was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and the green grass was burned up. That's the judgment that's coming, but that's being withheld here in verse 1 in chapter 7. And then in Revelation 8, 8, the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea, so a third of the sea became blood. That's coming. This is all judgment on the land. The sea is probably the Sea of Galilee. So all of this is coming, but it's being withheld here. Now there's a reason. Why do we not want the four winds of judgment, if you will, coming on the land? Why? Why do we not want the sea and the trees, the judgment that's coming? Why, do we, why does God want it held back? Well, exactly, to protect the people of God. So let's go to verse 2, Revelation 7. And another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the land and the sea. Now this angel that ascends from the rising of the sun, whenever you see an angel you think, well, there's angels everywhere in the book of Revelation. But I think this angel is talking about Jesus because he comes from the rising of the sun from the east. And we have a very famous passage in Malachi 4.2. Remember, if you want to interpret the book of Revelation, you go not to your newspaper, but you go to the Old Testament. <laughs> Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, that's S-U-N, Son, not S-O-N, but S-U-N, of Righteousness will rise. Where does the sun rise from? The east. The east. So we've got, G this obviously refers to Jesus prophetically. Jesus will rise with healing in his wings. He comes with, the, like the sun comes up, which comes up from the east. So I'm going to assume that John is referring to Jesus here. I'm, I'm stand on a pillbox and defend that to my death. I mean, it could just be an angel, but I think it's Jesus. And the reason I think so is because he has the seal of the living God. Now, what does the seal do? Let's read in Ephesians 1.13. In him you also were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel. Ephesians 4.30. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. All right, all of you who are saved are sealed. What does that mean? Gerald, I'll ask you. What does it mean to be sealed? sealed? For something to be sealed, like a king uh, would seal an envelope. All right, what does that symbolize if the king puts his seal on a, on a, on a scroll or a document? It came from him, and then he owns it. And if you own something, do you protect it? If you own a cell like your, like your computer, do you protect your computer? 
because you own it, right? So the seal shows ownership. It also shows protection. I'm going to protect this thing that I own, all right? So we are now going to see, well, let's read Revelation 7, 3. This angel, who I think to be Jesus, says, Do not harm the land or the sea of the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Who are the bondservants of God? Slaves of God. Who's that? Christians, yeah. Now, I'm going to say, just to give you a sneak preview here, that these Christians that are described as 144,000, they are Jewish Christians in the land of Israel who are being protected. I'm going to show you how in just a minute. Now, John gets the the sealing of the bondservants. It comes straight out of Ezekiel 9, 4 through 6. Now, remember, John saw these things in the vision, and then he has to write them down. Well, when he writes them down, he uses Old Testament language. We see in Ezekiel 9, 4 through 6, Ezekiel talking about Jerusalem. He's, he's in Babylon in exile at the time. He says this, Pass through the city of Jerusalem, the Lord said to him, said to Ezekiel, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the detestable practices committed in it. He spoke to the others in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and start killing. Do not show pity or spare them. So we see judgment coming on Jerusalem, but the judgment is not universal and extensive, is it? Because there's a mark on the foreheads on the foreheads of some people. Who are these people that have a mark on their forehead? Who are they? They're those who groan over all the detestable practices committed in Jerusalem, detestable practices is idolatry. So these are the believers in God. They've got a mark that seals them and protects them. They're not going to be harmed by judgment. So then Ezekiel goes on, or God goes on speaking. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, as well as the children and the woman. Do not come near anyone who has the mark. Do not come near anyone who has the mark. Protection. No judgment is falling on you. And I think that that refers to what's happening here in Revelation. We are, or the 144,000 are sealed. No judgment is coming upon them, despite this horrible judgment that's coming on Jerusalem. So we go to Revelation 7, 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed... 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now these 144,000, I'm sure if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door, they've told you about that, right? (laughs) And somehow they tried to explain to you how you weren't going to heaven because you weren't in the 144,000 or something. I don't know. But they have totally screwed this up, folks. 144,000, that number is not meant to be literal. Now, Later on in this chapter, we're going to see that each tribe is listed from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, from the tribe of Asher, 12,000. That's obviously not meant to be literal. How can you take 12 tribes and take a census and end up with exactly 12,000? Not 12,001, not 11,999. That makes no sense. This is symbolic. All right. 144 is, I'm going to go through some numbers here. 144 is 12 squared. What does 12 symbolize? If I told you 12. I think it's 12 tribes. 12 tribes of Israel, right? Could be the 12 tribes of the the, the 12 apostles. But uh, here, because it's obviously Jewish, as we'll see as we go on, it's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? Now, if you take 12 and what's the fastest way to to multiply something? Multiply it by 2 so you have a linear growth? No. You square it, right? 12 times 12 is 144. So the idea there's a lot of these people. Now, a thousand. Ten is the symbol in the the Old Testament of many. It's it's like seven almost, completion in full. 
10 is a uh, symbolic number. You got 10 by 10 by 10 and cubits in the Holy of Holies, 10 by 10. All right, so you take 10 and you want to multi- make it grow fast. You not only square it, but you cube it. What do you get? 10 times 10 is 100 times 10 is 1,000. So you got a, a, a exponential growth. All right, so the, the idea here is there's a lot of folks, a lot of people that are going to be sealed. And again, we read the book of Revelation, we think about all the judgments, oh, it's going to be horrible, but we, there's mercy in here. There's mercy. A lot of people are not going to be judged. They're going to be sealed. Now they're sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now the question is, are these sons of Israel, are they saved, Christ, saved Jews or unsaved Jews? Well, what would you think? And why would you say they were saved? Yeah, the sealed ones in Ezekiel were appalled by the apostate and they're sealed in the New Testament. Well, then, you know, God's not going to seal unbelieving Jews. So these are Christian Jews, all right? Christian Jews. Now let's go back to this idea of a thousand. I'm going to try to uh, counteract the tendency we have to take everything so literal that literally that we avoid the symbolism. Let's look at Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps His gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commands. Does that mean in the a thousand and first generation that God is not going to keep His gracious covenant? No, of course not. It just means for a long, long, long time. It doesn't mean literally a thousand generations. How about this? Psalm 50, verse 10. For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean on the thousand and first hills, the cows that are on those hills don't belong to God? They could have said thousands. Yeah, but the idea is it's just a lot of it. It's not meant to be taken literally. All right, so let's look again at this idea of calling Christians tribe of the sons of Israel. They were Christian Jews, and that makes sense as far as calling them sons of Israel because they were Jews, but also Christians are called that. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. Now, the twelve tribes are scattered abroad. Is James writing to Jews? Well, I, let's put it this way. Is he writing to unsaved Jews? No, he's writing to... Right. And so that's who I, I, I'm taking this 144,000 to be. Now, I guess to drive the point home, I'm not going to read all this to you, but <laughs> in verses 5 through 8, we have 12 tribes, uh, and, and each one of them has 12,000 that are sealed. Of the tribe of Judah was sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben was sealed 12,000, etc., etc., etc. The idea is just to drive home that these, this is the Christian Jews that are being sealed. They're not going to go down. Oh, while I'm here, let me, let me again kind of give you a sneak preview. Who were these Christian Jews who were sealed? If you recall Jesus in the Olivet Discourse in Luke's version, chapter 21, he said that, the, the bad guys will throw up an embankment around the city. And when you see the abomination which causes desolation, desolation surrounding the city, the Roman Empire, the Roman army was the, the agent of desolation, the, that which caused desolation, the idolatry and the destruction and so forth of the land of Israel. This happened in the Jewish War, which started in AD 66, halfway through, and lasted till AD 70, three and a half years. And what happened was... How were these 144,000 Christian Jews sealed? What happened was in 66 AD, at the beginning of the Jewish War, the Romans came in to put down the rebellion, and they sent a general named Cestius Gallius. And Cestius Gallius has his troops, he comes in, and he surrounds the city. Now, of course, inside the city are Christian 
Jews. They look out and they see this abomination which causes desolation surrounding the city. And they remember, Jesus told us to flee from here. But there's a problem. They can't flee because the city is controlled by zealots, uh, fanatic Jews who believed that a Jewish Messiah was going to deliver them from the Romans. And by golly, we're not going to surrender to the Romans. And we're not going to let you get out of the city to surrender to the Romans. And so the Christians were stuck. But then, inexplicably, and the historians today still don't know what happened or why it happened, Cestius Gallus pulls back from his siege of Jerusalem and starts marching north, right north of the city to a place called Beth Horon. And the zealots in the city got so excited, they said, oh, the Messiah has done this. This is a miracle. We were toast. We were surrounded by the Romans, and now they've left. We're going to chase them. So they left the city of Jerusalem, chased the Romans up to Beth Horon, and had a big battle. And they actually beat the Romans. Well, while they were up there beating the Romans and celebrating, what were the Christians doing? Running for the hills. They also knocked the wall down. I didn't know that. He knocked, they, they demolished the Ah, I didn't know they did that. Not leave. They turned, that was the miracle. They turned around after they demolished the wall and left. And left. Yeah. And where did they go? Uh, anywhere. I'll tell you. Yeah. No, 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 no. They actually, this is from uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, the 4th century church historian. They left Jerusalem at this point and went, it's about 40 miles or so northeast, crossed the Jordan River to a, a city called Pella, P-E-L-L-A, not Petra now, but Pella. And they stayed there for the length of the Jewish war, the next three and a half years, and not a soul got hurt. They were sealed. They were safe. They were okay. And this is what John, John is referring to. I don't know. It, it was associated with the Roman invasion. I don't it is. Cross- Bar Kokhba. Can't tell you. Or we go to verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. All right, now, we've already talked about the 144,000, but now there's a great multitude. And we need to remember here, or need to think here, that the great multitude is different than the 144,000. Now, why is it different? Well, I'm going to give you several reasons. First of all, it says no one could count this great multitude. The 144,000, can you count 144,000? Yeah. Now, that argument's a little bit weak because 144,000 is symbolic, not meant to be counted literally. Okay, so I'll give you that. Um, But also, we see here that John looks and sees this great multitude back in verse 4 when he was acquainted with the 144,000. He says he heard the number of the 144,000. So he didn't actually see them. And so from that we might deduce that, well, okay, the great multitude is in heaven and the 144,000 are on earth being sealed. Again, that's a, a sort of a weak argument. But a lot of commentators say that this great multitude is different from the 144,000. But I think that what clinches it for me is from every nation and tribes and peoples and tongues. Now, if you see that language in the New Testament, who does that make you think of? Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Gentiles, Gentiles because all over the world there are all these people as opposed to Gentiles. All right, so we're going to say that this great multitude is different than the 144,000. Now, they're standing before the Lamb clothed in white robes. What does white robes stand for? Purity. Purity. And they had palm branches in their hands. What does that remind you of? You're going to get it. Come on. <laughs> Happens every Easter, right the week before. Yeah, right, yeah. Palm, palm Sunday. Sunday. There you go. 
he knows it's on this microphone. He's nervous. <laughs> so, yeah, Palm Sunday. And, and when, they, when the people were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, they were waving their palm signs because they said, the king is coming. The king is coming. So palm branches means a welcome to the king. And likewise, these 144,000 are welcoming the king as they're clothed in their white robes. Notice they're standing before the throne and before the lamb. You often see here throne and lamb together because the throne, who sits on the throne? And who's in front of the throne? The lamb. God the Father, God the Son. Now, I've, I've just told you that the nations, all, nation and tribes and peoples and tongues are Gentiles. There is a problem with that interpretation. And the problem I'm going to introduce to, introduce to you in just a minute uh, is not been talked about in the commentators that I've read, that I've read. So I, I decided to inquire of two well-known theologians about this that I personally know. One is named Stephen Everett Ackerson. <laughs> the other is Dan Lewis Trotter. <laughs> but before we get to the problem, let's read verse, chapter 7, verses 10 through 12. And they, that's the great multitude, Remember now, 144,000 great multitude, let's distinguish them in our minds. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice where is the praise going? To our God and both Father and the Son. All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and all the four living creatures, and they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All right, so let's get a review here of the throne room of God. We got God in the middle on the throne. We got the Lamb in front. We got four living creatures around the throne, and they stand for the creation. Creatures, creation. And then we got the 24 elders around the four creatures. Who do they stand for? Uh, the disciples of the tribes. Yeah, the disciples of the tribes. The Old Testament, New Testament people of God. And then in chapter 5, which I've got right here, we see angels around the throne too. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne. So we got, and it's myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels in heaven above the throne. And what are they all doing? Remember, the elders had harps. What does harp stand for? Worship. They're all praising God. Now, if you'll look here in Revelation 5, 11, and 12, you can't see the color too well, but I sort of color-coded it. These, these uh, uh, great multitude of Gentile believers, they are saying these things, and here the angels are saying these things, and they're saying exactly the same thing. We've got blessing with the elders and blessing, blessing with the angels. We've got glory with the elders. We've got glory with the angels. We've got wisdom with the elders. We've got wisdom from the angels. We've got honor from the elders. We've got honor from the angels. We've got strength from the Got confused. We got strength from the elders, thank you, and we got strength from the angels. Now, this is a good pattern or template, if you will, on how to praise God. You know, we talk about praising God all the time, but what's the best way to praise God? Is you just state what his character is, what his attributes are, and what his actions are. Here it's mostly attributes. So if you just say, God, you're the God who blesses your people. You're the God who is surrounded in glory. God, I praise you for your wisdom. I praise you for your honor. I give you, you know, you just state the things that God is, and God loves to hear that because that's what everybody in the throne room of God is doing. They're all praising God by just recounting his characteristics to him. 
All right, now let's go to Revelation 7, 13 through 14. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? Now remember, the ones clothed in the white robes, that's the great multitude. That's not the 144,000, that's the great multitude. And John said to this uh, elder, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now here is the problem that I told you, the theological problem that I had to inquire of these two great theologians. This is the problem right here. Because if the 144,000 are all of, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, excuse me, let me say that again. If all the great multitude who's from the, every tribe, people, tongue, and nation, if they're Gentiles, how did they come out of the Great Tribulation? Well, first of all, now we've got to talk about the Great Tribulation. Now, if you are, I don't want to say programmed, I don't want to say brainwashed, I'll try to put it more politely. <laughs> if you have been <laughs> influenced by, thank you, if you have been influenced by the Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, futurist, pre-trib type of eschatology that's floating around everywhere, millions of dollars of worth are floating around in the books all over the church, you're going to hear great tribulation, and what are you going to think? It's in the future, and it's seven years at the end of time, right before Jesus comes back. And it's, of course, the church will have already been jerked out of it. We're up in heaven, and in, in the great tribulation, you have a bunch of Jewish saints, they call them, who who believe in the midst of all the great tribulation. Even though the Holy Spirit's taken them out and the Holy Spirit's gone, the church is gone, somehow they get saved anyway. But anyway, <laughs> this is the great tribulation. But I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what the great tribulation is. Where does the term great tribulation come from? It comes from Jesus in the, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 21, we read this. For at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Well, you say, well, maybe Jesus was referring to a great tribulation at the end of time. Yes, sir. Jay. Well, there was another great theologian. His name was Luke. And, uh, he, this is what it says in Acts 2. He says, they were dwelling in the right. nation. And that was the solution of that great theologian, Stephen Everett Ackerson, that we talked about yesterday. That's what he's going to go to. I was going to leave that out. But since you brought it up, I will bring it up, okay? Because I don't think that's right. But I will, but I will bring it up, all right? <laughs> so Jesus talks about a great tribulation. You say, well, maybe he's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. Well, no, it can't be. Because remember, in the Olivet Discourse, the three of the disciples asked him, it was Peter, Andrew, and John, I think it was, they said, look at this great temple here. Oh, you keep running down the Pharisees. You go into Jerusalem and during Passion Week. You run down the Pharisees and you talk about all the, how terrible they are. But look at this beautiful temple. This is, the, this is the, where the Messiah is going to rule from. And you're going to come and set up your kingdom, right? They don't know anything about second coming of Jesus. They don't understand anything about that. They can't even understand the crucifixion or the resurrection, much less a future return of Jesus. And Jesus says, look, Every stone of that temple is going to be torn down. There's not going to be one stone on, r remaining, one stone on top of another. It's all going to be gone. And when is it going to happen? Matthew 24, 34. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. How long is the generation? Let's say it's 40 to make it. 40 years, okay. Is it 2,000 plus years? No. This generation, let me read this, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 
truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. All these things, does that include the great tribulation that he just talked about in verse 21? Yes, it does. So this great tribulation cannot refer to the end of the world. It has to refer to the run-up, if you will, between AD 30 and AD 70 to the destruction of Israel in AD 70, which is, that run-up was about 40 years. So the great tribulation is talking about the persecution of the Christian Jews by apostate Israel running up to the end of that persecution, which happened when Rome destroyed Israel in AD 70 and burnt down the city of Jerusalem. Okay? So now, here's the problem. If, if these, that this great multitude of praising people clothed in white robes with their palm branches, if they are Gentiles then how can it be said that they have come out of the Great Tribulation? Because the Great Tribulation is talking about the persecution of the Jews in Israel, Jewish Christians in Israel by the apostate Jews. It's not talking about Gentiles. So there's your problem. All right, well, now I'm going to tell you how I solved it, and then I'm going to tell you how Steve solved it, which is what you, where you were going to, uh, Jay. Here's option number one. We say that those who came from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, that great multitude, were not Gentile Christians but we're Jewish Christians. And we go to, well, I've got several verses. Well, we can go to Acts 2, which you just read about. At Pentecost, there were Jews from all over the world. They came from Parthia, Elam, Paphlagonia, all the provinces of Turkey, Anatolia, everywhere they came from all over the world. And it says they are a great nation. Now, these Jewish believers were persecuted before AD 70, right? They were persecuted. Acts 22.4, Paul persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail. Those were Jews, he was, Jewish Christians he was persecuting. Uh, Jesus predicted in Matthew 10.17-18, he was speaking to his 12 apostles, he says, Beware of them, the nasty, apostate, unbelieving Jews. Beware of them because they will hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. So Jesus, no death there, but he is predicting persecution. We see in Luke 21, 11 through 12, this is the Luke version of the Olivet Discourse. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs for, from heaven. And this is, of course, the, the, the birth pain, the run up to AD 70 and verse 12. But before all these things, before the birth pangs of the of, of the disaster that's going to fall on Jerusalem. Before these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will brought, be brought before kings and governors before thy name, because of my name. So already Jesus has predicted persecution on the Jews. And, and then we got here Luke 21, 16, the Olivet Discourse. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. Well, now, here's the problem. If you say that this great multitude standing before the throne... How are they? They're not protected at all, are they? They're getting killed. And if you say that they're Jewish Christians in the 144,000, which I went to great detail to show that they were Jewish Christians, how are they getting killed? Because they're supposed to be sealed with a seal on their forehead. And so there's the problem. So if you say that these, this great multitude, are Jewish Christians who weren't sealed, who weren't those who escaped to Pella in AD. 66 that I just told you about. If you're saying there are other Jews who were persecuted before that, then this would fit. This would work. These are the ones, that great multitude of other Jewish Christians who came out of the Great Tribulation, 
they are the ones who, some of whom got killed and persecuted. They weren't sealed. But it was the special Jews in AD 70 who escaped to Pella who were sealed. Now, I don't believe, I, I've thought about this. I thought it was very, I don't, I don't want to say clever. I thought it was actually, it was a, a good solution to the problem. And you came up with it too. But I don't think it works. I think it's better to say it's Gentile Christians of all age, mainly because when you hear from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, that's what you always think. You think of Gentiles. But the problem is, is how do you say Gentile Christians of all ages came out of the Great Tribulation? Well, if we take coming out as meaning they died and went to heaven, well, then it doesn't work. If we look at Thayer's lexicon for come out as Urkelmite, one of the definitions is to come into being, arise, or come forth. So if we take it this way, these are the ones, these Gentile believers who come out of the Great Tribulation, you read it this way. The Jewish believers, the 144,000, they survived the Great Tribulation, thus giving rise to the Gentile believers. The Gentile believers came forth from the Jewish believers. In other words, from the great events of the Great Tribulation, but from the fact that those Jewish 144,000 people were taken out of Jerusalem, went to Pella, got saved, then they spread the gospel to all through the world. The Gentile church was the foundation of the Gentile church. Without the, Gentile, without the Jewish church being saved and sealed, we wouldn't have a Gentile church. And so I think that explains it pretty good right there. Again, that's my idea, you know, it's like creative accounting. Creative theology, you've got to be careful with it. And so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But that's the only way. I've, I've noticed this problem for years. I haven't really come up with a good answer, but I think that's the answer to it. I really think that, those, those, that we're looking at 144,000 Jewish Christians, and then we're looking at, coming from that, a, a multitude of Gentiles from all over the world who are going to be giving praise to God. All right. Revelation 7, 15 through 17. For this reason, they, that's the great multitude, are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. I say this is the great multitude because that's the previous verse it was talking about, the great multitude, not the 144,000. Not that it matters that much because the 144,000 are going to be serving God day and night too. They serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun bear down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now, the serving God day and night, that comes straight from the idea that the Levitical priests serve God day and night. 1 Chronicles 9.33, the singers, the heads of the Levite family, stayed in the temple chambers and were exempt from other tasks because they were on duty day and night. The idea is we're constantly praising God. The Gentile believers, all believers, are constantly praising God. And he who sits on the throne, that's God, he will spread his tabernacle over them. What's a tabernacle? What's a tabernacle? That's old-fashioned English for tent, right? So if you are in the desert and you have a tent put over your head, what does that mean? You're in the shade. You're, not, you're going to be protected from the sun. Again, the idea of sealing is protection. So this same idea here. God's going to protect us from the sun. They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun bear down on them. I think that comes from Isaiah 49.10. Isaiah says, They will not hunger or thirst. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them, for their compassionate one will guide them. And lead them to springs. So God leads them to springs of water. No hunger or thirst. Scorching heat of sun will not strike them. 
And you see the exact same language is used in Revelation 7 by John as Isaiah used in the Old Testament. Once more, illustrating the theme. You want to understand Revelation, you need to go back to the Old Testament. And of course, the idea here is the same idea, sealing, protection. We're not going to go down. We're going to have water when we need it. We're going to have food. We will hunger no longer. We'll have food when we need it. I don't care about how bad the persecution is. I don't care how bad the judgment of God is on the evil guys. The good guys who are sealed are going to be protected. Now, how do we apply that to us today? Now, I'm not a prophet. I don't know what's going to happen to America. Like a lot, a lot of people on the Internet know exactly what's going to happen. But I, <laughs> but I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But let's just assume for the sake of argument that God is going to judge this country for our manifold and, mani- and multitudinous sins. Okay? Now, I know a lot of Christians who are very concerned about that. They're very scared about that. And usually they're the ones who are reading the book of Revelation and looking at all the judgment and the fear and, and all the bad stuff that's going to happen. They say, oh, it's going to come on our country, and I'm in the country, so I'm going to go down too. Well, this chapter shows that, no, believers do not go down when God judges. Now, I'm going to give you three examples. Well, this is if you can think of. Think of some examples in redemption history where God judges, and yet his people are protected. Egypt, that's the first one. Ten plagues of judgment falls on Egypt. Did it fall on the Hebrew slaves? Not one bit. And they leave, right? All right, let's go back even further than Egypt. Can you think of another example when God judged the world? I hadn't thought about Sodom and Gomorrah. Who said that? Good, good, Chris. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, God judges the place. Volcanoes go up, smoking, sulfur, fire everywhere. burns the place down. But righteous lot, did he get killed? Nope. How about Noah? Noah's flood. God judges the whole world, floods the world, but there was eight righteous people who were saved. So, if God chooses to judge this country, which I think He will in my humble opinion, but I don't know for sure, but if He does, I'm not going to worry about it because I am sealed with God's seal on my forehead. I'm not going to go down. Yes, sir? Just another example that would be Jacob. That's right. There was a famine on Canaan. And Egypt, too, for that matter. And yet they still survived. That's a good one. I hadn't thought about that one. Yes, sir, Gerald. I just wanted to remind everybody the, the difference between God's judgment being poured out. Yeah. And what is the verse that proves that beyond a shadow of a doubt? In Second Thessalonians, I forgot the reference. We are not destined for God's wrath. Paul says that. Christians are not destined for God's wrath. Judgment does not fall on us. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.